Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. I'm Melissa Kane. I'm a political analyst and attorney and your moderator for today. It is my pleasure to introduce Russ Feingold and Peter Prindeville, authors of The Constitution in Jeopardy, an unprecedented effort to rewrite our fundamental law and what we can do about it. Russ Feingold spent nearly two decades serving in the U.S. Senate. He co-sponsored the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act with Senator John McCain, which, of course, many of you know as the McCain-Feingold bill. During his tenure, he also served on the Senate Judiciary Committee and co-chaired its, I'm sorry, and chaired its subcommittee on the Constitution. Now, these days, Mr. Feingold is the president of the American Constitution Society, a progressive legal organization, and he's an affiliated scholar at the Stanford Constitutional Law Center. With him also is Peter Prendeville, who is a fellow at the Stanford Constitutional Law Center, where he focuses on the relationship between democratic institutions, popular movement, and constitutional change. Whew, that's a mouthful. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here today. For those of you viewing at home or on your device, be sure to submit questions in the text chat there on YouTube. But let us get started with Mr. Feingold, Mr. Penderville. Tell us, this book, is the title here is very serious, The Constitution in Jeopardy. It's telling us we need to be worried about something. Uh, explain what that is. Well, first of all, thank you, Melissa. It's a pleasure to be on. We see that you still have some sunlight where you are. We do not where we are. Um, <laughs> listen, let me just give you a sense of where this book came from, because there's no way that 10, 12 years ago, I would have thought that this topic would cause uh, me and Peter to write a book called The Constitution in Jeopardy. I had uh, left the Senate, got my gold watch from the people of Wisconsin, and I was offered a job by Marquette Law School. And they said, why don't you come and teach a course about sort of a constitutional law through the lens of the U.S. Senate? And so I created this course. And over a couple of years of that, I thought, well, one of the things that the members of Congress do that people don't think about very often is you know, in theory, they should be considering whether a bill that comes before them is constitutional or not. Of course, they usually don't do that, but I think the founders wanted them to do that. And then I also thought, wait, maybe I should be telling people about those moments, rare as they are, when members of Congress actually get to vote on whether to send a constitutional amendment to the people of the states under Article 5 of the Constitution. So I added that. And then I got more and more interested in this, had no idea about possibility of a constitutional convention, and started to read a little more and decided to create a course, uh, a seminar, on Article 5 itself. Article 5 is the mechanism by which you can change our Constitution. The most familiar way to do it, of course, the only way that's ever worked, is if two-thirds of both houses of the Congress vote for identical provision and send it to the states and three-quarters of the states ratify. But there's another provision in there, and that's one of the jeopardies in our book, and that is the possibility of a constitutional convention being called through the application of two-thirds of the states uh, to the U.S. Congress. Uh, and if that happens, uh, we strongly believe the Constitution says the Congress has to call a constitutional convention. And so I created this course and uh, taught it at Yale and then came to Stanford. And I had a chance to uh, teach the course to mostly first-year students. And uh, one of the students in the class was just very smart. Uh, and ace the course. And then uh, he became my teaching assistant. And he's the other guy on the screen, Peter Prim, uh, who said to me, as we finished teaching the course, for the, uh, I was teaching for the second time at Stanford, he said, you know, 
given all this stuff we're talking about, people need to know about this. People need to know about this danger of a constitutional convention and also about the fact that the Constitution is awfully hard to change in a, in a way that would be progressive or positive. And so uh, he said, you need to write a book. And I said, look, I just took this job as president of, of the American Constitution Society. We have to do it together. And he said, okay. And so that's kind of how it came to be. And Peter can talk a little bit about what we mean by there being twin jeopardies uh, in this area. It's not just one. Well, as Russ said, the, you know, the book is about Article 5, this process by which the Constitution is amended. And we argue that there are two jeopardies, twin jeopardies, that are inherent to Article 5 that uh, pose serious troubles for modern life and our modern political life. The first is this movement uh, on the far right to call a convention under Article 5. We've never held one of these conventions before, and we don't know how it would work. The, the framers left no rules, and we argue that this poses a real danger uh, and, uh, and a potential constitutional crisis were this convening to be called. But the second jeopardy, also inherent in Article 5, is the fact that it's just too hard to change the Constitution. We have the world's oldest written uh, functioning national constitution, but it's also the least changed. Uh, we've only had 27 amendments to the Constitution, arguably 28 if you include the ERA, but 10 of those happened right away with the Bill of Rights. So functionally, we've changed the Constitution 17 or 18 times. And we argue that this poses some real existential problems for, uh, for the country. Uh, we need to have a constitution that allows we, the people in the modern era, to change the governing order. And so we propose a package of reforms in the book uh, to try and make Article 5 uh, real, uh, give, the, give the, uh, the Constitution's preamble, we, the people, a real lived meaning in the modern era. Well, and one of the things that your book talks about that I, I was sort of vaguely aware of, but um, but your book really brings into focus is this current effort. I don't know that everyone knows that there is an actual effort that's been going on for years to get this constitutional convention called uh, among the states. And basically, each you know, states are passing these sort of resolutions calling for um, a constitutional convention. So can you talk a little bit about the the origins of that movement i know it's one of, of maybe several over over the the course of this nation's history but but at least the most recent one i want to start with that um and talk about why that has made your book so important and really brought this issue to the fore well you sure certainly shouldn't feel bad because i was in the wisconsin state senate for 10 years i was in the u.s senate for 18 years i, I basically never heard about this either uh you know and and yet it's been percolated and as we write in the book, although, as you say, there were very important movements for constitutional conventions uh, in the 19th century, some of them leading to progressive amendments in the early 20th century, this modern movement sort of started in different phases in the 1960s, in some ways, in reaction to the Supreme Court's decisions about reapportionment. And then in the 1980s, with regard to the possibility of a balanced budget amendment. But this became really supercharged as, a, as an effort after President Obama was elected. It was part of the reaction, the Tea Party reaction, others, and the passage of many resolutions in many states calling for a constitutional convention that clearly was motivated by the idea of severely uh, denigrating or gutting, if you will, the powers of the federal government. 
to almost return us back to the era of the Articles of Confederation, which weren't working and were the reason that Philadelphia occurred. And so uh, it is a relatively modern development that is just now really coming to people's awareness. Uh, and I went to the website that they maintain and looked at some of their materials. And it's, it is very interesting because you guys do talk in the book about sort of what it is that these folks are selling. And, and the, it's the idea that there could be a limited constitutional convention. Because the reason I heard of this and I thought, oh, that'll never happen is because it's bananas to think that we should open up debate for just changing the, you know, whatever parts of the constitution we feel like changing. I mean, anyone who's ever, you know, tried to get a group of people to order pizza knows it is impossible to get people to, to agree on even mundane things, much less really important things. And so one of the, the reasons why we don't do this thing, we don't have these conventions is because they are a Pandora's box. Uh, and we don't know what will happen if everything is on the table. So what these guys are telling people, um, and you argue very persuasively that this is wrong, um, but they're telling people that there can be a thing called like a limited, some sort of limited um, convention, a, um, a convention of states, uh, and uh, and that it could just be for a specific purpose. So, can you talk a little bit about about why that's necessary and and your your thoughts on why that's incorrect? Well, first about the limitation question. Um, it's it's quite clear, you know, the Constitution doesn't provide that Article Five conventions can be limited, and. Unlike the the contemporary claims, you know they're also not an outgrowth of state legislatures. An Article Five convention is a freestanding constitutional body, and just like any cons any legal body, it can set its own agenda. Congress can set its own agenda. A legislature can set its own agenda, and so to think that these applications uh, can limit the the ambit of another legal another legal body, uh, or that Congress could do it. Uh, really has no basis in law, and it has no basis in the history of Article 5. And so it's our position that were an Article 5 convention to be called, uh, it would have almost limited scope, except one topic, which is any, it can't propose an amendment that changes the, the nature of the Senate, because that's the one area within the Constitution itself that is exempt for amendment. So that's that's a big problem, and we argue it's, it's uh it was, well, you said most, it's a Pandora's box. Uh, it, it could, you know, this is, we've never held one of these convenings before. So if it actually were triggered, you can imagine, I mean, it's a once in two century opportunity. You can imagine uh, what might come from that. The other question is, uh, well, who does this convention actually represent? Uh, th these current efforts have, have, have really created, divined out a whole cloth within the last decade, a new phrase uh, to to call this convention. They call it a convention of the states, a, a phrase that appears nowhere in the Constitution. Uh, it appears nowhere in the historical record of the 1787 Constitutional Convention. And arguably, I mean, it, it, it's anathema to the Constitution's ethos. Uh, the, the Constitution begins, we the people, not we the states. Yet it, this, this reframing of terminology is important uh, to, to this current movement because they want to, to reimagine Article 5, not as a conduit for popular constitutional authority, as we would argue is quite clear from the Constitution, 
but rather something more akin to the Articles of Confederation, which conceives of the nation as uh, you know, a loose league of friendship between sovereign states, which is, is an idea that the Constitution put asunder in, in 1787 and 1790. And, you know, Russ, you guys talk in the book about how, you know, the, let's assume the state legislature um, says, hey, you know, person A, you can only go to this convention and talk about issue X. Um, that that That's really not binding. And that once they're there, they can really talk about anything they want. Not only could you kind of make an argument uh, that, uh, that, you know, X is anything you want it to be, but, but, um, but also that there's really um, no legal basis for trying for saying that it would be binding on a delegate um, to, you know, to stay within those bounds. I was looking at my, um, oh, where did I put it? Oh, I was looking at my Ferrand. My Ferrand, at least a Ferrand, it's like Ferrand, my Ferrand records. Ferrand, yeah. Ferrand, sorry. <laughs> uh, and he- I've got um, mine right up there. <laughs> you do, see? <laughs> and I was looking, Delaware, uh, the Delaware delegates um, were limited. They were not allowed to vote for a change in, um, a change from the one state, one vote um system under the Articles of Confederation, and yet, uh, and yet Delaware delegates endorsed the final constitution, which contains the House of Representatives, which does not have exactly that. They expressly went outside of what they were instructed to do. Uh, and Delaware, I think, was the first state to ratify the constitution with this <laughs> with this deviation uh, in it. And so, you raise a good point. I mean, the, the, the other point is that, you know, the 1787 convention, people often say, well, isn't that the precedent? Shouldn't an Article 5 convention function just like the 1787 convention? But the 1787 convention was convened under a completely different legal order. It was convened to amend the Articles of Confederation, not I mean, it overstepped the order, but nonetheless, you know, its entire ethos was different. And so our argument is that, you know, the, the new constitution encoded a completely new understanding of constitutionalism and a, a new understanding of national union. And so we have to, you know, we can't just look to the old, you can't look to the old regime on how to change the new one. It gets the process backward. Well, and and the membership at this convention would be by state, isn't isn't that? Can you talk about the implications of that kind of setup? It's not the case that California would have more representation at this kind of convention. You could you it could be you know dominated by people representing um, you know less than a majority or or maybe well, just a little bit more of the states. Melissa, that's a critical question here. There is simply no basis for these convention of the states people to claim that each state should have an equal vote at a convention. That, that is not in the Constitution at all. All it says is that two-thirds of the states can apply for a convention, and then the Congress is obligated to call it. And the idea that somehow these delegates are chosen, however they're chosen, they might be chosen through state votes, they might be chosen through state legislatures, they might be chosen through national referenda, that is all open. But the one thing that is absurd here is the argument that it is necessary that each state gets the same vote, that California has the same vote as Wyoming. This will lead to a result that does not represent the will of we the people. 
It will lead to a result that is grossly balanced, imbalanced toward a strong or small conservative minority that wants to essentially gut the power of the federal government to solve the problems of this country. And so we don't know how the delegates would be chosen. But the one, th- but these folks are putting out this claim that it has to be done exactly this way, that is completely uh, triggering a notion that will lead to a far-right rewriting of the Constitution. That, that is one of our great concerns. There's a whole host of unanswered questions about how Article 5 works and how this convention works in practice. And, you know, the first among these is who does the convention even represent? Does it represent states as sovereign entities or does it represent the people? We, we discussed that before. But this other question about, uh, you know, who are the delegates and how are they chosen? It's, it's intertwined with the first. I mean, if you believe that this convention is of the states as sovereign entities, then it makes sense that legislatures would select delegates. But that itself is an unfounded claim. And so this is why we end the book where we do saying that, you know, these these questions need to be answered. We need to reform Article 5 because we can't just allow these uncertainties to continue for another you know, two centuries. Uh, we need to have an amendment process that is functioning. And there's a world in which constitutional conventions would be great. Uh, we, we should have more frequent constitutional change. If you look to the states, uh, you know, there's a great history in American uh, constitutionalism in the states of having these kinds of, of convenings, and many of them have produced uh, good reforms in, in state constitutional law. Well, and one of the things you guys talk about is whether Congress could put some clarity around Article 5. I mean, there's two ways to go about it, right? You could amend Article 5 as a constitutional amendment or pass um, or have Congress pass legislation to try to put some meat on the bones of uh, of Article 5. Um, is, um, do you have any indication that there is a political will to to sort of wade into those waters? I know you guys are nonpartisan, but um, but uh, the idea that it would be really helpful and and maybe stop some misinformation if Congress were able to um, to get in there and specify exactly how this would go. Melissa, that would be nice, but Peter and I believe there's no power to do that. The Congress can't do that without a constitutional amendment. There's simply no authority for Congress to say, oh, this is these are going to be the rules. This is how it's going to work. This is how we're going to count the applications. It's just not there. And this is why we fear not only some of the agenda, that these folks are putting forward. We fear the possibility of a constitutional crisis because we also believe that the Supreme Court can't get really involved in this, that the court has no authority to step in and say, no, it's gonna be this way, it's gonna be that way. And so what you have is this uh, amazing power. Uh, some even compared it to these, one of the conservative state senators from Ohio compared it to a Lord of the Rings situation where this thing just arises And it's potentially chaos, a constitutional crisis with no ability to resolve it. And you may or may not know that recently Steve Bannon has endorsed and embraced this concept of a constitutional convention as one of his highest priorities, because what he wants is chaos. What he wants is a constitutional crisis. And so he may care more about that. And he does even about the very conservative ideas that are being put forward for the convention. So, no, we think that without a constitutional amendment, Congress really can't do much. It is true that in the 1960s, when there was the possibility 
of uh, one of these conventions being called with regard to the reapportionment issue, that Senator Sam Urban of North Carolina wrote a, a proposal that would have put these rules in place, but it did not pass and it probably would not have been enforceable. We are, you know, it's clear. It's clear from the this, the 1787 convention, you know, there, the, there's these two roots in Article 5. Either Congress can propose amendments or this convention can do it. And in the book, we tease out what we call this compromise. And it's clear that this bottom-up method of calling a convention was intended to be able to check Congress. It, it, was, it was supposed to be an alternative method distinct from kind of the normal array of national political life. And so it doesn't make much sense to think that the method by which the people are supposed to be able to check Congress can then be regulated by Congress itself, because that could make could make the convention process a dead letter. And so we we believe that the only way that that these unanswered questions can be resolved is through constitutional amendment itself. We need to it's, it's a bit kind of bizarre to think about it, but we need to amend the amendment process uh, to, to give it more. Uh, certainty and clarity so that it can be used in practice without having to worry about these 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 potential crises. Well, I do want to point out some of the things. So I went to the website of the um, the organization that that is calling for this this thing, um, and uh, the list. There's a, I'm not going to list everything, but there is some here's some flavor of the proposals that they would like to consider at such a convention. Um, Limit the Supreme limit Supreme Court justices to nine members. Um, prevent the addition of states without the consent of three quarters of the existing states. Um, I would assume that that's to prevent Washington D.C., maybe Puerto Rico, any other places from joining as states. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and kind of play off of that until she comes back. Okay. You know, uh, Melissa has, as we try to restore her here, has led us into a, an important subject that I can illustrate by talking for a minute uh, about what they are trying to do. She's listed some possibilities, but uh, this may help book sales, but what I'd like to say is that if you read no other chapter in the book, read chapter five, which says what Trump and the Tea Party couldn't do. And it begins with a quote from a former colleague of mine, Rick Santorum, who says, and he works with this group, he says, we're planning on putting resources, people in place, to get to where the safety's off, and we have a live weapon in our hands. I don't imagine James Madison sitting in Philadelphia talking about having a live weapon in his hands. So what are they trying to do? And Melissa was really getting at this. This is how they would really make it work. They had a, a dry run in September of 2016 in Williamsburg, Virginia, and they had a convention of over 100 state legislators from all 50 states, conservative legislators, who came for what we describe as a constitutional war game. The enemy, the federal government, the warriors, a who's who of the hard right establishment, the battlefield Article 5. And yes, they did have a video with George Washington dressed up in the, on horseback saying that, you know, that you're going to be heroes just like me. But you know, a lot of people tried to make fun of this. Some of the people on the left in the media said, well, this is kind of a silly, silly game. But as Melissa was suggesting, it's not silly at all. Uh, they really took this seriously. Uh, even to a casual observer, we write, the debate would have been impressive. Delegates, the vast majority of whom are conservative Republicans, aligned with the Tea Party movement, approached the affair seriously and engaged in good faith debate. They had working committees. 
They parsed language. And then they decided to have votes. And of course, as we've indicated on the show already, the vote wasn't based on the overall delegations, number of people. It was based on one vote per state. And what they came up with was very similar to the kinds of things that Melissa was just describing. Uh, among the things they passed was restricting Congress's lawmaking authority to a tiny fraction of its current extent. So one way to think about that is what could you have done about COVID? 19 at the federal government. They would have an amendment restricting federal agencies' rulemaking authority, which would really severely limit the ability, if not eliminate, the ability of the EPA to deal with climate change or clean water. They would make income tax unconstitutional. And the one they like the best, which uh, is perhaps the most disturbing, I call it the John C. Calhoun Amendment, because it's like nullification of federal laws. They say, and want to have a provision, that if 30 state legislatures, not even the governor or the people of the state, but 30 state legislatures vote to overturn an act of Congress or a regulation, it's gone. So what they're doing is gutting the federal government, as Peter was talking about, returning us to a previous legal regime that was working so poorly that this country itself almost was vulnerable to losing its, its newly found independence. So... That's really what's going on here. It's not just a theoretical possibility. This is what they're preparing for. And Russ, you raise a good point. I mean, these policy goals, you know, we can debate their policy goals, uh, you know, as a matter of politics. But the, a real concern, although, you know, we might personally disagree with some of these proposed amendments, the real concern is this vast void of uncertainty that we were talking before with Melissa uh, about and into this void has rushed all these new theories about Article Five, about how it functions, uh, and and even as we said, you know who the convention even represents. And so uh, these are troubling in their own right for the, these these reasons we we discussed. And I think we have Melissa back. I'm so sorry that has <laughs> never happened. I swear. We were just, you gave me a perfect introduction so I could talk about the way they're preparing. For this constitutional convention, I went through a, an example from Williamsburg, Virginia, where they're doing this, and I gave some other examples, as you did, of what um, what they're what they'd like to try to do, and how that's we have to take this seriously, not just as a theoretical problem or a possible constitutional crisis, but they're working really hard to get it all ready to go. And in fact, uh, there was a resolution introduced in Congress uh, by uh, Jody Arrington of, of Texas saying, "Hey, there's already enough." applications so the congress needs to call the convention scott walker you know governor scott walker from from wisconsin made the same claim last year uh that the number of the number of applications is satisfied and there's actually litigation in the western district of texas that made the same claim now that case was dismissed uh, but it wasn't dismissed on substantive grounds so the legal question is yet to be addressed by the courts we would argue that these claims that uh that the threshold is satisfied, you know, fail on their own, uh, fail on their own terms. They, they don't have legal grounding, but nonetheless, the, the issues on the move and, and, you know, we'll see what happens in, uh, in the new Congress. Uh, it's possible that this resolution will be introduced again and, and, you know, perhaps the, the house will hold hearings on it or, or, or maybe even put it to a vote. And so uh, this issue, uh, what many people used to think that it would never happen uh, and, and, you know, it, it's coming to, to, to the floor in our public life. 
Well, and can you talk a little bit about, because you do get into it in the book a bit about where they get this number from. Um, it's kind of ridiculous. And, but having said that, um, there, we also have on the left, um, you know, this move to get uh, the ERA um, recognized, even though it's got some of its, um, you know, sort of endorsements and resolutions are from very, you know, from a long time ago. So um, can you tell, talk a little bit about how they got to 34 and then whether the ERA debate actually sort of touches on this um, and if there's implications for that? Well, first about how they get to 34 and then uh, we can, you know, Russ and I have some thoughts on the ERA. But, uh, you know, as I, we said before, there's a whole host of, of unanswered questions about how Article 5 functions in practice, you know, these nitty-gritty technical questions. One of them is how you actually do the math of counting to 34. You'd think that in, in constitutional matters, you'd think in something as deeply important as how a sovereign people changes their governing order, that, you know, we would know how to do constitutional mathematics. But the reality is that it's not a hard science and that there are, there are all these unanswered questions. So to get to 34, uh, these, the, the current movement is using very, very uh, dubious counting methods. For example, they, they, amalg they, they claim that, that some ap applications from history, there have been over 500 of these submitted throughout history. And some of them, you know, the, so one was submitted uh, before the Bill of Rights, right when the Constitution was two were from Virginia and, and New York, kind of as the initial bargain to get the Bill of Rights and to secure the new order. Well, the, this contemporary movement claims that some of these old historical applications can be combined with any other. So when uh, you know states tried to avert the Civil War uh, by applying to Congress for a convention, well, even though that would be clear from the text of the resolution and, and you know, common sense that you know, this is intended to address questions of national union. It was intended to, intended to address the issues uh, around the Civil War. Well, these contemporary efforts add those into the equation. And so they, they, they mix and match all these different things to try and get to the magic number. And, you know, we can, we can question these methods as a legal matter, but the reality is, is that it's up to Congress to do this math. And so if, if they endorse these theories, that's their prerogative. And so it's one of our, our, our proposed reforms to Article 5 is we need to know how these kinds of applications are counted. It, we need to have the rules set beforehand, because otherwise you're having uh, state legislatures being used against their will uh, for, for, for issues that they, they're not interested in. In the case of many of the, the current movement, you know, legislatures from beyond the grave. I mean, these are centuries old documents. And let me talk about the ERA piece, because this is a very interesting way to illustrate all this without getting too technical. The process of calling for a convention and the process of ratifying constitutional amendments is very is completely different. So what Peter just was talking about is how you count to 34 to get an applications into the Congress to create a convention. The ERA has nothing to do with that. The ERA was duly passed by both houses of Congress and we, I believe, as president of the American Constitution Society, Peter does not have to own this, but our position is that it is already in the Constitution, that it is high time for the Biden administration to simply publish uh, a new Constitution that has it as a 38th Amendment. And why is that? It's because we believe that the time limitations that Congress put on the uh, ERA bill are invalid. 
and that any state, once it ratifies the ERA, that's it, that you can't unratify. Now, there are going to be some people that dispute that, but I think Peter and I agree that a state can rescind an application for a convention, but a state cannot unratify a constitutional amendment, or we'd never have any idea whether anything's actually in the Constitution or not. So what happened was a couple of years ago, and Peter was in the class when this happened, is I was told by an advocate that she she came to Stanford and told us that in a year she would have the Virginia legislature change, that it would become a Democrat, that they would become the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, and that they would be in court a year later. Sure enough, and I thought, sure thing. A year later, there we were in the class, she was back, and that's exactly what happened. And now it's in front of the Court of Appeals. And but it, but the main thing here is to is to distinguish between ratification that does not become stale. I voted in the state legislature in Wisconsin for the Equal Rights Amendment when I was much younger. That ratification is still valid. On the other hand, an application for a convention to stop slavery or to have senators directly elected is clearly stale and is no longer a legitimate thing. And so here's our problem, though. <laughs> with regard to the convention part, we don't know if the Supreme Court would ever really deal with this issue. That, that's what's so bizarre about this. Interesting. Well, sir, I think, uh, yeah. uh, Melissa, just on the ERA, you know, there's another kind of, if you just step back for a moment and think about the, the current state of play of the ERA, I think it's really a good you know, encapsulation of of why we we think that Article Five needs some fundamental reform. It's bizarre if you think about it that the question of whether or not a sovereign people has changed their founding fundamental law and founding text is an open question, and it's even more bizarre to think that it's a question that can be litigated and that it's up to courts to decide. I mean, constitutional amendment should be the purest manifestation of of popular sovereignty in a democracy. And the fact that there are all these uncertainties and procedural questions that is so, so clear in the ERA debate uh, is to, to us just a sign that we need some serious debate about constitutional change and some fundamental reform. Well, and so one of the things that your your book really lays out um, well, and it, it's all very interesting, is is this series of uh, moves in American history toward having a convention. We actually came close a couple of times, and uh, and those were all averted. It seems like, at least in part, um, by other amendments that came from Congress. So in order to avoid this kind of fiasco, um, they said, fine, we'll give you some part of what you're looking for at this convention so you don't have to open the door to just anything. We'll give you some specific things like the income tax or prohibition. And so my question here, and this is actually related to to the Article 5 amendment, um, is are, are there amendments that you think that could be made to avoid um, you know, maybe places where people could agree term limits for Congress, for example, I think is something you probably could get a lot of bipartisan support for um, things like that, that that could be changed or amended through the process we think we know, uh, instead of um, opening up for a convention. And, by, and, and I want to include amending Article 5 in that. I would say it would be extremely hard to get amendments through right now on any of these subjects. Um, First of all, term limits isn't going to happen because members of Congress don't want to limit themselves to term limits. So that's probably not going to happen. But 
it's more about what we write about in the book is that this partisan divide is so terrible in this country right now. The idea of getting two thirds for anything in both houses is exceedingly difficult. And it's, it's sad because clearly the electoral college is completely obsolete. And in the 1960s, Senator Birchby, who once chaired that subcommittee or predecessor subcommittee of the one I described, he actually got well over two thirds of the House of Representatives to vote to get rid of the Electoral College and came very close to getting it through the Senate. And it's pretty clear, I think, that it would have been ratified. But now things are so partisan that it appears almost impossible for that to happen. So I, uh, maybe there would be something that has to do with emergency measures. I worked with Senator John Cornyn of Texas after 9-11 to say, maybe we should have a constitutional amendment in case all the members of Congress were killed, which, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here two blocks in the compartment that I was in on the day when we were told that the plane was coming at, at the Capitol. We have no provision to replace members of the House, but I would say it's exceedingly unlikely under the current rules that that could happen, and that's why we propose changes for Article 5. Well, what are the things... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I just to say that art, amending Article 5 itself might be a topic on which you could find some, in, some common ground. It, it's, uh, as I said before, there have been you know, hundreds of applications submitted to Congress calling or uh, app applying for an Article 5 convention. A common theme among these applications uh, are, are desires to have Article 5 itself be changed. And so I, I think, you know, there, there could be appetite for some of this more rule, rule changes, procedure reform, uh, which are more, uh, are, are more focused on kind of the, the constitutional questions as opposed to these more policy-minded debates about uh, the, the nature of federalism, for example, um, or, or uh, you know, the, the, the role and extent of the federal government. Well, you know, one thing I've noticed on the left is also an appetite maybe for a convention. I mean, there or, or for some amendments, because there is so in as much as there's this is much more organized right now um, uh, on the right trying to limit the federal government. There is also um, an appetite on the left among some folks who want to expand the role of the federal government and and shrink the the role of states um, in, in, you know, in an effort to, to make things more more unified. And so. Um, my thought was, if I was on the right and I wanted this convention, why not link up with dissatisfied folks on the left as well and sort of try to capitalize on that and get the convention called that way instead of just sort of trying to convince this group of, you know, Republican state houses to pass these resolutions? Have you seen any indication that that's um, an idea that they're pursuing? Or are you nervous that, uh, that you know, you could get sort of an unholy alliance of people on the left and right who say, let's open it all up and, and, and see what happens? I see no evidence that the right wants to do that. And that's because they don't want to have a bunch of people in the room who are going to have fair rules for how delegates are counted. They want one vote per state. And the kind of people you're talking about would not put up with that. So they, if they can't get their convention in this kind of skewered, bizarre technique of having it dominated by the number of states rather than by the people of this country, they don't want to do it. And by the way, I know of no agenda on the left to, to limit the power of the states. What I know is, you know, I don't, they're not proposing that. They're proposing overturning Citizens United, the, the, the election decision. They want provisions having to do with protecting the environment, 
which you could argue would, would broaden the powers of the federal government versus the states, you could argue that. They want to get rid of the electoral college so that the people of this country as a whole um, will vote for president rather than having it based on a skewered system. And I, I think a lot of people would like to see a right to vote in the Constitution because the Supreme Court has done enormous illegitimate damage to the right to vote. So it strikes me that those are the kinds of things that people on the left might want in a constitutional convention. And I can assure you the convention of the states people don't want any of that. Right. I just meant, yeah, that there's there's folks on the left who are unsatisfied with That's the status true. quo as well. And, and but yeah, just and if, you're saying performalists, you know, we, we can debate all these questions as policy matters. You know, I I I think it's something to overturn citizens United would be good if it was tailored appropriately. But really the important question in article five are these is are these procedure questions the reality that there just are no rules about how this functions and so we can't uh, you have to address those questions first before you uh, go the next step and think about substantive reforms um right right of course um it's just it just seems like one i you know once you start getting people involved who are really you know, sort of win at all costs or, you know, get that convention at all costs. Um, it seems like there are, you know, there might be more, more people who are dissatisfied with the status quo and oh, uh, potential, potential fertile ground, maybe not for this very specific, you know, cosplay Williamsburg thing they put that they put on, but, um, but for something, uh, uh, something that would, that would sort of um, open the door. In fairness that we respect a couple of uh, progressive law professors Sanford Levinson, Levinson of the uh, University of Texas and Lawrence Lessig of Harvard, who have called for a constitutional convention from the left. Um, I think uh, we just were with Professor Levinson at, at a class at Harvard, and it seems like he has come to the point where he's not sure that without some changes in the rules, but Professor Lessig seems to still think that that could be done. So in fairness, there are people on the left who would like to, to, to pull the ripcord. And uh, to to see if we, we could all people could all get together at a convention and have good results, but I think they would both have to concede if 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 it ends up being as we suspect the convention of the states people would insist that it's one vote per state, uh, they would have to concede that that would not lead to a good result. Well, we've just had the midterm elections, and so it seems like there's been some good news for for folks who are um, on the left in the state houses. I mean, that's where this is all playing out. Um, that's why it's been so under the radar. These little, these very innocuous resolutions get passed, and you know, sort of no one notices. And then one day we're gonna we're gonna have 34 and uh, and really be really be in a bind. So it's important to keep um, keep a, a lookout for for those things coming across. I think it's one of the great things about your book, really putting that um, in the fore of people's minds to to be on the lookout for. Um, but you know, we've got these these things happening in the state house. We've got the new elections and. Um, at the same time, I went to the website for this this right-wing group, and they appear to already have sort of pivoted, and now they're looking at proposing election amendments to the Constitution. That's one of their—so before it was a lot—it was mostly budgetary and 
you know, regulatory reform they were looking for. Um, now they've added on there um, the, you know, the idea that elections aren't fair, that democracy is broken, and that they would like to maybe make some changes to the to America's voting system. And so I want you, to, I want you to weigh in on sort of what you make of these midterm elections and, and events that have happened since you wrote this book. Well, you know, you have to uh, first acknowledge that it could have an impact. Um, the fact that some legislatures became less right-wing, such as Michigan is now no longer controlled by the right, could mean, as Peter pointed out, that they could rescind some old uh, applications and reduce the number of states that actually have active applications. On the other hand, some of these Convention of the States people were bragging that they defeated a number of, of sort of thoughtful conservatives who don't want a convention. So they are trying to replace some of the Republicans uh, who may not vote for a convention like uh, this woman in Montana, who at least temporarily voted against it, with people that are part of, the, part of this convention of the states thing. So it can go either way. But the larger point that Peter was really making is the impact from one election to another is not nearly as great as the fact that this is a longstanding, well-financed effort and that they may decide to turn to trying to get this convention called through some kind of a counting scam, regardless of the immediate political wins. And that's the danger, is that they may figure out a way to try to pull this off and create a constitutional crisis, regardless of the status of Congress or the status of the state legislatures. It's important to think of Article 5 and, and, and these questions in the span of decades rather than you know, two-year election cycles. And so uh, it's a topic that people need to continue to focus on and, and track intently. But it's quite possible in some states that now, you know, that this will be used as a, a, a it'll be framed as a, as a way to check uh, kind of a, 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 the maintained democratic majority at the federal level. Uh, and and perhaps you know one could make that argument about some of these these messaging elements that you you mentioned, Melissa. That this this issue has become uh, a litmus test on the far right, or at least they're trying to make it one. Uh, and 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 weaving it into all of these other uh, policy issues and grievances that have um, been been uh, in our news lately. My predictions are often wrong, Melissa. But one of the predictions I'm making is that. What happened when the Republican candidates were present in 2016 were all on the stage and they were asked, do you support waterboarding? Do you think it's torture? And of course, they all said, no, no, no. We, we all support waterboarding, every single one of them. I predict that the same thing is going to happen with this, that they're all these DeSantis, all these people are going to run. And when they are asked, whether it's Trump or anybody else, they're going to say, oh, yeah, I support a constitutional convention because it's become part of the fabric of the right's overall effort led by people like Steve Bannon to undermine our democracy. And so this is what will sort of supercharge this if you end up having a, a president elected who has said that he or she supports a constitutional convention. I think that's going to happen in the next two years. Oh, boy. That's terrifying. Uh, and so we've got some audience questions here I want to give to you guys. Um, one is, do you believe, um, now this is a little tangential, but you're both constitutional scholars, so I will ask it. Um, do you believe that the Supreme Court should be expanded in size um, or that term limits should be enacted? And I'm assuming term limits for Supreme Court justices is what is what they're asking. And that's one of the things that the um, the folks who want a convention 
think might be a good idea, the, the term limit idea. I'm going to take this one, uh, A, because Peter's about to clerk for a federal judge and should not be <laughs> question. Secondly, I'm going to answer it in my capacity as president of the American Constitution Society. We strongly support judicial reform. We believe that the, you need to add justices to undo the packing of the court uh, by filling those vacancies recently in a very illegitimate way. And I never thought I'd say this, but I also believe that we should have either a constitutional amendment or, if you could, a statute that would create some kind of term limits, maybe 18-year term limits. But I am not speaking for Mr. Prindeville here. It's very important to be very clear about that. But I am speaking for those of us in the reform movement who think that the court's been stolen and that we can't sit back with three new 50-year-old, some pe people dominating the court for the next 30 years without doing anything about it. It's not right. Um, all righty. So the next question is um, what, and I'm sorry, Peter, you might not be able to answer any of these. <laughs> they're a little, they're, they're, uh, they're a little, you know, they're asking for opinions here. Um, what do you think is the most pressing issue facing our country right now? Aside from article five, though, which we know is a very important issue facing our country right now. Aside from this, what is the most pressing issue? Well, for me, it's the fact that our democracy is is dissolved into into chaos. That people don't listen to each other anymore. That they don't take uh, common facts as being legitimate, and that we aren't uh, really relating to each other as a democratic society anymore. I find it shocking. And you know, I often answer a question like this by talking about the international situation. Well, I believe that affects our international situation. Recently, I was part of a delegation from our group to go to the European Law Institute. So we went there as a delegation representing the United States. And they came up to us and said, we're so glad you're, you're finally here. Why did they say that? Not because they love Americans necessarily more than anybody else. They said, because we are so worried about your democracy that we believe that if your democracy fails, our democracies will fail. So it is not only a domestic issue. It is an international issue if this democracy is failing. And that is the scary thing. That, to me, is the scariest thing that's going on. Wow. And you guys have been uh, as part of this book tour. Um, you we were speaking off camera a little bit before you said you've been to London, which um, is kind of um, amazing that there would be this interest in our Constitution and in our you know sort of a very specific amendment process, um, even there. We were surprised. We were surprised, Melissa, that, you know, there was remarkable appetite for for discussion of of obviously the topic of the book, but um, America, the American Constitution, the democracy more broadly. And you can imagine it's an interesting topic to discuss in Britain because so much of our constitutional tradition and especially the amendment process was, you know, all drafted in extreme opposition to the British, <laughs> the British system. Yet nonetheless, there's this great appetite to engage it, to understand it. Uh, and as, as Russ said, I think, you know, it's just another uh, element of the 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 influence troubling influence of polarization uh, in in our life today and it's a topic that uh, has has taken its hold in in the constitution itself through this article five mechanism uh, and it's is an issue we discuss in the book about how it's really troubling to think that this polarization this extreme polarization could be translated into these constitutional convenings in a way that could do a great disservice to the document and to the future of the country. Yeah, it's fun to think about the fact that this document was drafted by a bunch of people who were once proud Englishmen. <laughs> when, when King George III became king, 
Benjamin Franklin wrote this glowing letter about what a wonderful king he's going to be. Uh, so you have to remember that the, the ties between the two countries in terms of constitutionality are fascinating. Well, and actually, I want to um, give a shout out to my fellow California viewers um, out there, because you actually in the book talk about Prop 13, which is something else all civic minded Californians are very familiar with. And even some not civic minded Californians are very familiar with and they pay their property tax bill and how that how California's system of um, repeatedly, exhaustively, probably too aggressively <laughs> amending our state constitution, which is now some like 200 pages long, uh, you know, gave people some, you know, put some wind in the sails of a, uh, of a convention movement, um, which somebody who's covered politics in California and nationally for so long, it, I was really surprised. I had no idea that there was this connection between the success of Prop 13 and, um, and sort of a renewed push for, uh, for a federal convention. Can you talk a little bit about that, especially for our, our California folks? Sure. Well, you know, it really invigorated a movement in the 80s to call a convention to propose a balanced budget amendment. Uh, it was California. And the success of constitutional amendment is a path to tax reform uh, that, uh, you know, sparked a, a, a wave of applications. And we got very close uh, within one state of calling a convention to address balanced budget amendment issues. California also, if you know, if you want to talk about the California Constitution, it's also a great example. You know, the last part of our book, as I said before, is focused on reforming Article 5. Well, we argue that, you know, to, to think about how to do that reform, one place to look uh, is the states. That, you know, the, the, the theory of American constitutionalism is not limited to, the, to one document alone, that we have uh, 50 states and and the District of Columbia Home Rule Charter and other territorial charters uh, that are these examples of the ongoing development of, of American understandings of fundamental law. And, you know, California is a great example where we can say, well, what's working here? Uh, are, are these, uh, some would say, you know, very, uh, um, you know, broad attempts at, at direct democracy, are these useful? Do we need to, to, do we need to change these kinds of amendment processes? Um, and we think that's a debate that needs to be had about looking looking abroad, across the states and, and seeing uh, the the differing array of, of of amendment procedures. Is California one of the ones you would support? I don't know if anyone who's ever been on Twitter wants everybody voting on a specific well <laughs> constitutional this... amendment, like a public referendum in America. Well, it's interesting, you know, that some. Uh, you know, one of the questions is, should we allow ratification in different ways? Uh, you know, ratification could be allowed through a, a popular vote, but there are alternative methods. For example, the federal constitution allows for ratification in two separate ways. One is through state legislatures, which is the method we've used the majority, the vast majority of the time. But it also allows for ratification through ratifying conventions, this alternative forum. That's how we repealed prohibition, by the way, which is a fascinating story because, uh, you know, this, this undoing of prohibition, people said, well, wait a second, what, you know, if we're undoing it, uh, you know, we should maybe go to these other forums because the, the initial method didn't work too well in terms of gauging public opinion. And there are some interesting cases like in Ohio, for example, where the, the legislature kind of misstepped. But 
you know, I think that that's maybe a route. You know, we allow for these different methods, direct plebiscite, but alternative methods as well. And in fact, our, our first proposal for a constitutional amendment to change Article 5 says that a constitutional amendment could be ratified if a majority of the popular vote in a majority of the states said yes, and then a national referendum also said yes. In other words, Peter and I don't think that you should be able to have a majority vote just to amend the Constitution. Otherwise, it's not a Constitution. It's just another law. But we do think that there needs to be a more popular voice than simply gerrymandered legislators. And so that's why we think some kind of a modification like that could make it more possible to amend the Constitution, but not just you know open the door and say, just do whatever you want. We think that kind of procedural change is necessary to make it so that our Constitution isn't simply stuck in the mud for the rest of time. Uh, well, we do have some, um, a, we have a few more minutes. I do want to get to another audience question here, which is um, in doing this research for this book, um, did anything surprise you? What was the the thing that maybe most surprised you in, in doing this research? What surprised me the most was looking very closely at the Constitutional Convention itself and the way this played out. Some authors who have written about this have said that, well, the convention was sort of an afterthought, the idea of a constitutional convention option. That's simply not the case. Um, and it's a way to sort of denigrate it. Look, Peter and I are very worried about a far-right constitutional convention, but we think the mechanism is legitimate. And when the convention was called, the way the convention started was that the Virginia plan was introduced and the Virginia plan said, that the Constitution could be amended uh, by a convention, but that the, the national government could have nothing to do with it. And it wasn't until later in the summer, after that continued to be the general mechanism, that Alexander Hamilton said, no, we can't have a constitutional convention. It has to just be Congress. And he got a vote, nine to one vote in favor of that. But then George Mason and some of the others said, all right, then we're out of here. And they had to come up with a compromise. So I kind of knew that. I taught that in the course that Peter took. But delving into it a little more closely really fascinated me to realize this is an inherent tension in our Constitution that legitimately reflects two different goals. One is fundamental change, bloodless revolution, as we call it in the book. And the other is essentially repairing the Constitution, such as getting rid of the Electoral College, the kind of thing that maybe Hamilton would be more interested in. So it's one of the most, to me, most interesting, surprising, and fascinating things that very little has been done with um, in terms of, of academic and historical uh, study. Well, I, I was also surprised. You know, we, we start the book uh, not at the convention in 1787, but we started a decade prior uh, during the revolution. And we asked the question, how was it that the earliest Americans even conceived of a constitutional amendment. What did they, what did they think about it? What, what did they believe its power to be and how important did they see it? And it is so clear from the historical record that the earliest Americans saw constitutional amendment, these formal procedures for changing fundamental law as the cornerstone of these new American understandings of constitutionalism. They, they saw it as the linchpin for the new order. And this is a it, it's a it's a it's a theme that we argue has been lost in American public life. Uh, it's so clear that uh, 
Article 5 and, and state constitutional amendment mechanisms were supposed to be these, um, these high points of our political life and, and reforming our, our political order. And we argued that that's really been lost. It's a lost story. Uh, and we've shifted constitutional change to other fora. Uh, the executive branch, the legislature changing constitutional meaning, the courts uh, having a profound role in changing constitutional meaning. And we argue that we need to rekindle that early belief. We need to make Article 5 a, a real forum for popular change in the modern era. And that's why uh, we propose the reforms we do. You guys have a, um, a model proposal for Article 5? Do you have a, um, a provision like, um, you know, Alec shops around these... <laughs> These model model resolutions. Do you have a, a, a something that you guys have drafted? I mean, I know you've got recommendations in the book, but do you have a um, a, a draft maybe that, um, that if someone were so inclined, they could introduce? Well, first of all, we vigorously reject the comparison to Alec. Oh, <laughs> we're not going to put up with that. Uh, no, we haven't drafted an amendment. We, you know, that's not we see our role. We, we lay out the principles. Look, we think a bipartisan commission should should work on this. It should be people that are outside of Congress, citizens that get a chance to weigh in on this. This is a we the people moment. It's not just for the state legislatures. It's not just for the Congress. Um, so no, we, we've, I, I don't think Peter and I see that as our role. Well, and we, in, in the book, we, we, we argue uh, that we didn't want it to be our role, that, that the point is, is that we need to start this debate. And we sketch some thoughts about, you know, possible areas for reform. But the reality is, is that we have really never had this kind of political debate before. And, and so we need to start it. I mean, that's the first step is acknowledging that it's a topic that needs reform and needs debate. Uh, and and we, we sketch a, you know, kind of a, a broad agenda for what that debate could look like. But in terms of a, you know, a textual proposal, we haven't quite gotten there yet. If Congress were to, to, to form the commission that we, we proposed, then I'm sure I'm sure we would uh, enjoy thinking about that more intently. Uh, and how has the reception been? Have people generally? I mean, you've been you've been about this quite a while, um, uh, and you you know you've been doing these interviews. Have people been generally um, responsive and interested? Um, maybe surprised, <laughs> as I was, to uh, to to find out that the we are closer maybe than we thought to actually, um, you know, an abyss of legal proceedings and you know proposals and fights. Well, Peter just said it perfectly. We wanted to start a conversation about this, and we did. It has been covered in the New York Times and Washington Post. We had responsive audiences all over the country saying, you know, don't we have enough to worry about? Like, what, what are you guys <laughs> adding? And we say, well, don't you want to know what's happening? And so we think that we have achieved our primary goal, which is to begin the conversation. And we are only helping to begin it. Um, there needs to be engagement by all people, citizens, legislators, voters, judges. Everybody needs to sort of become familiar with this because this is, we were the first nation in the world to create a written mechanism for amending the Constitution. And it needs to be taken more seriously. And we have serious problems with not being able to fix the Constitution. So uh, I think, uh, you know, I'm, we're hoping that people continue to have this conversation. And we expect that uh, it's going to become part of law school discussion. You know, you, we talked in advance that you didn't get much of this uh, or a number of things necessarily in your constitutional law class of this kind. This needs to be part of constitutional law uh, teaching. 
not not just what what did the justice eat for lunch, but what <laughs> does Article Five mean, and how do we change the Constitution? You know, I hate the term constitutional crisis. I feel like it gets used way too often. I feel like every time somebody tries to do something that's unconstitutional, they call it a crisis. But like, as if it's a criminal law crisis when someone breaks the law. It's not. It's but so. But this, you know, does sound like the actual thing where there is an issue with the actual text of the Constitution that needs to be fleshed out. And you know, for folks who um, who may feel alienated from it, you know, maybe a moment to uh, to contribute to the history of the Constitution and you know be a force for molding it and shaping it in a way that. Um, you know, can maybe make people feel connected to it because the fact, you know, you read through the records, they say, oh, we'll amend it later. You know, like they actually well, expected there to be a good amendments. One of the justices across the street here uh, once said on a very different topic, I know it when I see it. Uh, <laughs> and in this case, when I see this and I see the possibilities of this, that's a constitutional crisis. And, and when we say crisis, what we also mean is that, you know, there's no forum within which to resolve these problems. As we said before, Congress can't do it. The courts can't do it. The executive has no role. And so there's this just middle void. Uh, and, and that's a crisis because there's no way out. Uh, there's no way to resolve it. And, and that's why uh, we wrote the book now. And that's why we, we end where we do, again, saying we need reform and we need this debate. All right. Well, we do need to wrap it up. But before we go, I'm going to give each of you the opportunity to end on a high note. So please tell us what gives you hope about Article 5 and potentially uh, resolving this issue. Have you seen things out there um, or, you know, interests out there or have any indication that this, um, you know, you know, might not be a total disaster. If you can tell us that so we can so we can well, end on a happy note, that would be great. Yeah, I'll, I'll refer you to, to the book where, you know, I was inspired by a place far away from here, by what was done in Chile in the last couple of years. They had a severe political crisis going on, and they had an old constitution from the Pinochet era, and they decided to call a constitutional convention, not in this extreme, narrow way that's being attempted here, but they had elections, and they voted for delegates who were indigenous people, who were teachers, who were environmentalists, who were, and, and, and they voted against anybody that was part of a regular political party. And they had a constitutional convention, and they proposed a constitutional convention, and they put it to a vote, and it was defeated, but it was a legitimate process where people in a calm way discussed what should be done with their nation, and it was not some kind of a he said, she said, screaming at each other kind of situation. So I was inspired by that. And it's kind of what I think about when I think about, you know, we could have a different way of amending the Constitution that would really involve we the people. And I, I take it back home. I, I've been um, inspired really by, you know, we've we've been taking this book on tour across the country and, and had many conversations with people in bookstores, at law schools, at universities. And there's a real appetite in the country for discussion about these topics. And I see that as a, as a, as a sign of hope that, you know, as I said before, the, the founding generation saw these questions as, as fundamental, as the cornerstone of, of who we are as, as a people. And uh, I, I, I I'm excited and, and, and happy to know that, that, the, that uh, it hasn't died, uh, that we still have that appetite today. And hopefully uh, people can get involved on this topic and can spark this kind of debate and 
uh, movement for reform that uh, we sorely need. Well, excellent. Thank you. That's a better note to end. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Many thanks to Russ Feingold and Peter Prendeville, authors of The Constitution in Jeopardy, an unprecedented effort to rewrite our fundamental law and what we can do about it. Thank you both for joining us today. If you want to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts to make virtual and in-person programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. I'm Melissa Kane. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.